You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 116. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. All right, all right, all right. Here we are, episode 116. Welcome, welcome, everyone. You have reached another Local Maximum. If you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's episode on the coronavirus models, that was a very interesting dive into what's going on in epidemiology in the world these days. A lot of interest I got in that on on Twitter and elsewhere uh, into what I'm doing, uh, into kind of explaining these models um, and, you know, sort of just offering a little bit of insight into what's going on there. That's episode 115. I'm sure I'll have more to say about all of this maybe next week. I don't want to do coronavirus week every week. Um, but as the situation unfolds, you know, two weeks is a pretty long time to uh, to, uh, to to wait for an update. So we'll, so we'll do it once every two weeks. So, um, all right. Uh, today, today we are going to return to a discussion about machine learning. And specifically, I'm going to talk to someone who uses machine learning in biology, um, in something called cell cytometry. If you don't know what that is, don't worry, neither did I. I literally had no idea. So you'll find out in a minute. Uh, but I'm delighted to announce that this episode is once again sponsored by Manning Publishing. Maybe not too shocking since I am interviewing one of their book authors, but these interviews always make very popular shows. In fact, a lot of my most popular shows are from Manning Publishing book author, uh, authors. And this particular book on machine learning looks very promising uh, to me, very straightforward. Uh, discover a powerful set of machine learning our stats tools for practical data science, tackle business problems, crunch research data, learn to build your own machine learning pipelines with machine learning with R, the Tidyverse, and MLR. Available on Manning Publishing. Use promo code podlocalmax19 at manning.com for 40% off. Also, the first five people who email me at localmaxradio at gmail.com will get a book uh, we'll get uh, a code to get the ebook for free. All right, now we actually haven't covered something called unsupervised learning on the show yet, which is surprising because unsupervised learning is huge. Um, I've done it a, a few times, and it's it, it's you know I always try to leverage my expertise in machine learning uh, to kind of bring topics onto the show. Unsupervised learning is a big part of it, and I looked in the past, and I feel like we maybe touched on it before, but uh, but but not too much. So maybe we should talk about it more. Uh, so we kind of open up that can of worms or that chapter a little bit in our discussion today, uh, something we will no doubt continue, unsupervised uh, learning. It sounds scary, right? Unsupervised machine learning. Like we're just going to let these machines go unsupervised, go wild, and who knows what, they were, what they're going to do. No human supervision. No parental supervision. What is that? That almost sounds like, well, you'll, you'll see what it is in a second. Um, it's, uh, well, <laughs> it, it's, I always thought it was a, it was a funny name for something, but I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to spoil it for you. All right. My guest today is a life scientist and cytometrist with nine years of experience teaching R, statistics, and machine learning and using it to extract meaningful insight 
from biological data. He believes that machine learning should be accessible to people, to the people and his book, Machine Learning with R, the Tidyverse and MLR, aims to do that. Heaven Reese, welcome to The Local Maximum. You've reached The Local Maximum. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Hi. Thanks for being on the show today. Um, now, now I get to ask you a little bit about what you do because I can't even pronounce it. It's uh, <laughs> flow cytometry. Did I get that right? Yeah, you pretty much did. Yeah, that's good. okay. Yeah. But I still have no idea what it is. So tell me what it is. <laughs> sure. So um, flow cytometry is a set of techniques for getting um, single cell data from from biological cells. So I'm a, a life science uh, researcher, um, and um, flow cytometry basically we start with a, a, a suspension of cells, so a bunch of cells floating around together. So it could be like a mixture of cells like blood, for example. Okay. Um, we add a, a, a reagent to the, the mixture that will bind to only certain um, cell types. And we could add uh, like a cocktail of different reagents um, and they're um, fluorescent. So when you shine particular light on them, um, they, they glow. So then we take these cells and our instruments uh, force them single file through a series of lasers. And when a cell carrying one of those reagents passes through the laser, um, that laser excites that reagent and it flashes. So we can um, basically uh, map a, a, a linear relationship between the intensity of that flash and the amount of um, whatever protein or um, nucleic acid um, that that reagent is bound to um, on the cell uh, to how much that cell expresses. So we can get the expression um, information for different proteins and things from thousands of cells per second. So, so let me... Let me uh, reiterate or uh, try try to summarize. See if I got this correctly. You're shining lasers at cells. Shining, I don't know the right word. You're pointing lasers at cells and using the results to determine what's in the cell or information about the cell, proteins, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it could be okay. what's on the cell or what's in the cell. Yeah. Okay, and what what's on the cell or what's in the cell? So what what's an example where this would be like really useful? Like what, what why would uh, why would someone want to have this done? Is this usually this is not is this human cells or is this uh, like uh, single cell organisms or 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 like tissue samples or or what exactly? How how does this really work in the lab? Yeah, so it could be for diagnostics. So it could be that, you know, you draw blood from patients um, and maybe, you know, you, you run um, the blood through the instrument and you're looking for uh, a very, very rare uh, population of um, cancer cells that are circulating in the blood, for example, and you can use this technique to identify them. Or it could be um, uh, cells that have been grown in the lab um, in addition, you're uh, looking for something that you've added to the cells or exactly it could be single cell organisms like uh, yeast or bacteria. Uh, bacteria. Um, that you run through the instrument. So it could either be about identifying uh, different cell types in that sample or looking for changes in those cells in response to some kind of treatment or disease. Mm, okay. So how did you get into this originally? You've been in, in this field much longer than you've been in machine learning. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. So I'm a bit of an outsider. So I'm a, a, a biologist by training. Um, so my um, my uh, original research was in uh, immunology, so studying um, immune cells and how they function in, in disease. Um, and flow cytometry is a technique that is heavily used um, in, in that field. And we started to um, expand the number of things that we were looking for 
um, in our cells. So we're suddenly now working with data sets with millions of um, cases in them um, and dozens of um, features. And the kind of traditional ways that um, uh, you know, people would analyze the flow cytometry data uh, were no longer sufficient. We were coming up against these big data sets that um, has many, many features and we needed to um, basically try and uh, understand what cell types uh, were in the data set in a kind of unsupervised way. So machine learning became the kind of um, de facto way or set of uh, techniques that we would turn to to analyze our data. Yeah, it's, well, and we're going to talk about unsupervised for a while, but yeah, you, you, you ran into big data. A lot of times, um, you know, some maybe non-machine learning methods uh, can live outlive their usefulness after you reach a certain scale. And then you're like, you know what, we have to move to machine learning. It sounds like that's what happened to you. There's a little bit about my way of thinking over the last few weeks. I, you know, machine learning has been used in medical and, and biological data sets for a long time, statistical methods, but I've never used it personally. I've never looked into it personally. And after what's been going on in the world, for the last couple of months, I'm like, you know what? Maybe, maybe I should. Maybe I should look into this a little bit more, uh, just because, um, you know, trying to use all the techniques that um, I've been learning about and applying for years. Um, I think that the uh, the application in well, bio biology and medical are a little different. I don't know if yours are, are medical applications or, or biological applications, but I think I, I think it's. Um, I, I think it seems a lot more, um, I think it makes people sit up a lot more than it did uh, just a few months ago. Yeah, I mean, um, machine learning is, is very widespread now in terms of um, uh, medical and, and biological uh, research. I mean, you've, you know, we can use computer vision algorithms to train models that can do just as well at categorizing um, x-rays as, um, uh, as, as the medics, for example. Um, and it's as important in diagnostics, so um, trying to make predictions for, for patients and their health outcomes as it is for just basic biological research. Um, I think largely the difference is that in uh, the clinic, it tends to be more supervised machinery. We tend to use labeled data sets to predict disease outcome, for example. Right. That is, supervised means that you're trying to predict a certain thing, for example, a disease uh, from the image or from the data set or from the... Exactly. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. We're starting out from a position where a, a trained expert clinician has already defined, um, you know, the outcome and the label for that data. Uh, and we're trying to train a model that can um, do the same for, for future data. For, from our point of view, for the, 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 the basic biology research that we do, um, quite often it's the, the unsupervised. So we don't already have the answers and we're trying to um, find the patterns in the data set. So um, from a, a flow cytometry point of view, from a, a single sample, we have these millions of cases um, and, and dozens of uh, features, maybe 50 or more. Uh, and we don't know what's in there. We, uh, we don't know what cell types um, are in there. We don't know how many distinct cell types are in there uh, or even what they are. Um, and so we're using um, machine learning techniques to try and identify what those cell types are so that we can you know, further study them. Um, so, and... so, so the goal here is not to diagnose for a specific condition or check for a specific protein or anything like that. You're trying to do something a little more unsupervised, um, which will tell you, well, give me an example of like what that would tell you so that that would push you forward. Like give me an example of a, maybe a specific case that, that you've run into where that, that was, that, that seemed like the right thing to do. Sure. I mean, 
Um, say, uh, for example, um, you uh, observe some kind of clinical trait. So in, in patients that um, have, have a disease state, you observe something that's wrong with their immune system, for example, um, but you don't quite know what it is. You don't know what cells are uh, involved. So you um, run um, their cells through our flotatometers. Um, you get this big data set. You, you know what um, uh, molecules are present on the different cells so that you can identify them. Um, and you look for cell types that are uh, non-overlapping between those two types. So say that you find that cell type A is present in healthy people, but is absent in diseased people. So you can then say, okay, well, what is the, the basic biology that means that that cell type is missing? What can we do to, um, to, to use that as a treatment target? Um, and uh, what is it that, that, that the absence of that cell is contributing to the disease? So in order to deter, are you using uh, unsupervised learning to determine what the cell types are to begin with? Is that, did I, am it, I doing that correctly? Sort of. It's, yeah. uh, so we, we already, um, for, uh, the, I mean, the, the, the number of cells in the body is, is uh, phenomenally complex, but we have pretty good um, annotations of what different cell types express um, on, on their surface or inside of them. Um, the problem is, is, identifying whether those cell types are present um, in any one um, sample. Um, and so, uh, for example, if uh, we take all of those dimensions um, in our data set and we reduce them down to two and say that we find that there is a, uh, a particular um, cell population that clusters away from the others or is absent in, in one patient versus another, if we look at those and we say, okay, well, these cells express you know, markers X, Y, Z, we can then look back at our annotated databases and say, ah, well, the cells that express this level of X, Y, Z are this kind of cell. So we, we now understand what that is. So we already know what cells are for the most part. We just don't know whether they are in the sample or not. Gotcha, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, 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 it sounds like this, so I, I've read a little bit of your book and it sounds like kind of this informs the outline of your book, but why don't we just uh, mention what it is? Uh, it's called Machine Learning with R, the Tidyverse, and MLR. Why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, uh, you know, why you started writing the book and what your approach to it was? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's a bit of a mouthful, the title, but it kind of uh, yeah. does what it, what it says. How about it's just on, machine on... learning and flashing big text? That's all I see. It's machi oh, machine learning. Give me the give me the ML. Give me the good yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. And the rest is in sort of small font. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I I realize that I'm a bit of an outsider. I'm I'm, I'm not a computer scientist. I'm not a mathematician. Uh, why have I got any any business writing a book on machine learning when I'm a biologist? Um, the kind of maths, stats, and uh, machine learning um, literacy in biologists is is, uh, is stereotypically uh, kind of poor. It's not really taught um, particularly well. So I'm in kind of a, a, a privileged, lucky position that I've been able to work with the kind of people that have helped me learn um, this stuff. Um, and I see a lot of problems um, that different researchers are, are, are tackling, or different uh, problems that they, they could tackle that would be relevant to their research. But they don't just they don't have the literacy um, to be able to use all these amazing tools out there to be able to get answers from their data. And uh, I really firmly believe that the people that should be able to leverage and get insight from machine learning are the people asking the really important questions. Um, and at least within you know uh, my purview, that is uh, uh, academics and, and researchers. Um, and so I wanted to write a book. Um, that uh, kind of assumes no prior knowledge or very minimal prior knowledge that um, people like me when I was starting out could pick up um, and access um, and uh, to kind of democratize um, machine learning. And I, 
I was very cautious as well of this because I realized that one, I am uh, an outsider, so I have to be very careful doing this. Um, and also there is kind of a gatekeeping argument um, to be had um, around people performing machine learning without really having the right qualifications or knowing what they're doing, because you can do a lot of harm uh, if you, you know, build models and make predictions um, that actually give you completely the, the Yeah, answer. there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of work out there, which is just, you know, taking the framework and pouring the data set in and just using the framework and getting the predictions without really understanding what is going on in there. Yes, absolutely. And, and it, it's dangerous. And actually, um, that kind of thing can um, cost lives, um, even depending on the, the decision being made. Yeah, and so I re I, I really... I'm, I'm lucky enough that, uh, you know, working at Foursquare, I was I was suggesting people go to restaurants. So I'm pretty sure well, that uh, <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> unless the restaurant was really bad. But uh, no, I, I fortunately, I when I was first learning, I could I was testing it out on that kind of stuff. And and I would screw up on that kind of stuff, uh, which was a lot less, um, which was, I feel like that's where you should start, you know, not in terms <laughs> of, uh, you know, prescribing medicine or save air, you know, so identifying disease or something like that. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. I think a nice safe, uh, playground is, uh, is, um, is, is good. Um, which I hope is somewhere that my, my book provides, but also I, I really, really, um, spend a lot of time drilling into the readers, how to properly validate uh, models, how to be skeptical of models. And um, although uh, I assume reasonably basic uh, math skills, uh, because I'm, I'm not a, a phenomenal mathematician myself, uh, I make sure that I go into enough detail about how the algorithms and the models work that uh, people have uh, a decent understanding, at least, of, of what it is that, that, that they're doing. Um, and I, I cover um, a, a large range of techniques from the kind of bread and butter stuff that you get in your um, intro to machine learning class through to, um, you know, uh, a lot more modern techniques. So what are your um, kind of uh, techniques to be skeptical of models? What are your kind of red flags to look for? Or um, what are your you know, uh, what's your kind of go-to method of, of evaluation? Uh, I mean, just starting from a, a skeptical point of view, I think um, people can train a model on their data and get an answer that they want to see. And immediately all of that skepticism goes out of the window and they feel excited that their model is telling them what they want to see. So that, that's the, the, the first thing um, is to always um, have this uh, point of view that's um, the model is wrong. All models are, are wrong. Uh, it, it's just a model. Um, and then, of course, it, if your data set is not representative of the wider population that you're hoping to generalize to, no form of validation can, can help you. Um, but in the, the book, I, um, I, we rely on um, nested uh, cross-validation as a, a relatively intensive um, technique for um, uh, cross-validating um, our models. So ensuring that um, things like um, tuning of hyperparameters or of uh, feature selection, you know, these sort of data-dependent pre-processing steps are done inside uh, the cross-validation loop, because I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make. They sort of tune parameters and, and do these data-dependent things um, outside of, of the, the cross-validation. They do it before they split their data. Yeah, just um, to explain this for the folks um, mm -hmm. who we we have a lot of machine learning uh, insiders listening, but uh, not everybody is. So, um, uh, you know, essentially, if you kind of tune the hype, there are some situations where you could sort of tune parameters 
outside the model in order to essentially give you what you want. And that's not necessarily helpful. There are a few cases where I don't have a problem with tuning hyperparameters where I know, okay, this really is not that bad, like if I'm doing a pretty simple logistic regression or something like that. But what you're saying is if you do some um, cross-validation, we can ensure, okay, I'm not just, um, you know, I'm, I'm not just memorizing the data set or I'm not just, you know, uh, I'm not just uh, tuning it to get the answer I want, even though, uh, but without like learning anything. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and so we, we spend a lot of time repeatedly um, going through this, showing them different ways of, of, of doing it, um, because of course the different situations call for different uh, uh, approaches, um, as you say. Um, but um, making sure that they can understand and identify whether their model is um, predicting the specific patterns that they trained it for um, in the first place and how to deal um, with that and how to, to, to uh, define that. Um, and we do that throughout both um, supervised settings it, where it's kind of easier to, to know whether you're you're uh, overfitting your data set you know you have labeled cases um, but also um, teaching techniques of how to work out whether you're overfitting in an unsupervised situation which is quite a bit harder um, to do um, but um, yeah yeah I, I want to get into that in a sec but but before we do uh, have you ever run into a case yourself where uh, you know you you, you trained a model that, that seemed good, but something maybe just didn't smell right and turned out something was, uh, was, was a miss. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We, um, one of our, um, our cytometry platforms is, uh, an imaging cytometer. So it does exactly the same thing as our other flow cytometers. Um, but as the cells whiz by, it takes, um, images of them. Um, and we can generate thousands of images per second. And this is a great candidate for, um, kind of, um, computer vision algorithms and models. Uh, but sometimes it's kind of difficult for us to get large numbers of, um, of, uh, data, um, for this. So we end up training models on small data sets. So in the past, I've um, trained models that were looking for um, the cells that line your airways that have little hairs on them um, called cilia that help to uh, remove um, mucus from your, your airways and training a model to identify um, those. And my, um, my test set um, of data that I was, I was validating my model on uh, was quite small um, and it gave me um, excellent um, classification accuracy. The performance was wonderful. But when I deployed the model um, to much, much larger samples in the future, I found that it was consistently um, missing cells that were in a particular orientation to the camera. Uh, and it was biased against classifying um, those guys correctly. So no matter how well your, um, your validation um, metrics uh, seem to imply how good your model is, um, you never really know how it's going to work in the real world until you deploy it and start validating it as it's in use. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so I like the way that um, your book is organized because, it, you know, the five, uh, you know, there's sort of five large areas of machine learning that, you know, uh, many of us are familiar with. Classification, regression, Dimensionality reduction, clustering. I guess there are four there. I don't know why I counted five. There are five chapters. The first one is introduction. I should have known. Yeah. That. Um, I mean, I guess there could be more, but like those are those yeah. are those are the five. Those are the four that um, that um, I would probably use more often. The first two, classification and regression, we've covered on this program uh, quite a bit, but we mm -hmm. haven't covered 
um, the unsupervised methods as much, mm-hmm. which I would talk about, well, a little bit, but we would talk about uh, dimensionality reduction and clustering. So maybe can you tell us a little bit about how those work and you know, how, how those are deployed in the, the real world? Like why, why you, know, you kind of think of machine learning as, most of the time I think when people think of machine learning, when I think of machine learning, I think supervised. Oh, I'm trying to learn whether, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, let's do biology. I'm trying to learn whether this cell has a particular a protein in it or a particular, this, this sample has a, has, a, has a condition or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, when you're doing unsupervised, it's a lot more, um, you know, it's a lot more, it's a lot more open-ended. Uh, what would you, how would you describe unsupervised learning to people? Yeah, so unsupervised is when um, you're kind of hoping or you're training um, a model to identify patterns that exist, but you don't know what those patterns are um, a priori. There are no labels um, for, for the data. And for I think for, for most people's problems, you can kind of um, split unsupervised learning into uh, clustering um, and dimension reduction. So clustering is kind of an unlabeled form of classification. You're, you're trying to learn a model that um, identifies distinct clusters um, or uh, groups or a grouping structure of data. Um, so for example, in, in our data sets, um, this takes the form of us trying to identify distinct cell types. So white blood cells from um, cancer cells or, or cells that line your lungs, for example. Um, and the other um, part of, um, of the, the most common form of unsupervised learning is um, dimensionality reduction, which is um, a set of techniques to compress data, basically. So to um, most commonly turn a large number of columns in your data set into a smaller number of columns, uh, or it can also be the other way around. It can be to reduce the number of rows um, in your data set. And this is largely for um, um, either to improve the visualization of a data set. So humans are not very good at working um, in more than two or three dimensions. Our brains kind of melt um, if we go yeah, too far. Two is uh, way better than three. Three maybe <laughs> yeah. we could deal with, but uh, once you get to four, uh, I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so if we can compress you know, 50 variables down into just two, um, we can visualize and, and look for patterns um, in our data manually, which is very useful. And the other thing is to counter this um, strange little thing called the um, curse of dimensionality. Um, which um, happens when you have a data set with many, many variables. And this is um, a set of weird things that happen that uh, basically impede the learning of other um, algorithms. So um, in in our case, for example, when we use uh, clustering algorithms to try and identify the cell types, we usually apply um, some kind of dimension um, reduction algorithm to the data first. uh, And then we end up looking for clusters in that reduced um, dimension um, space, um, where those clustering algorithms perform much more favorably. Right. So I guess I could, if I was just kind of approaching this for the first time, I was trying to visualize what's going on. I would say dimensionality reduction might be like trying to look at the data set and trying to pull out what's important. Um, you know, the, the, the few components that, um, that are, that, that, um, uh, may, maybe the few components that, 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 that really have an impact on what is going on in this data set. It's hard to, I'm trying to think of a specific example, um, but um, it, it, it could be that, hey, um, you know, I have, I mean, let, let's use biology again. I'm not, I don't know a whole lot about biology, so maybe it's bad for me to try to think of an example on the spot. <laughs> but let's suppose you take 
all these measurements of people, like 100 measurements, but really um, people are very similar. And it turns out that they could really be, um, they, can, they can all be summarized in like three or four numbers that tell you uh, what you kind of need to know about the person. And using those three or four numbers, you can get a good idea of what the 100 other measurements and tests are going to are going to show not perfectly, but um, even if it's just by an estimate, you can kind of say, okay, those four values that I now just invented uh, seem like they're really important and maybe we should study them further. Um, let's look at marketing data. A lot of people talk about marketing data like, hey, you have um, tons of different types of people out there. People have different age, gender, the zip code, uh, income, number of kids, whatever. All of them might be important. Um, on their own, but it could be that um, for the purposes of the product that we're trying to sell, we can um, reduce these into several important groups. I guess that's more clustering than dimensionality reduction, although uh, <laughs> you, you could probably do a little bit of both. Um, I think that makes sense to people, right? You know, hey, we don't want to have a thousand, like every person is a unique snowflake and we have to, uh, you know, we have to design our marketing campaign around each individual person. That's not going to work. That's not going to fly. Uh, it's, it's too much work. But if we can reduce it to like five or six different types of people, different profiles, then we can do something that then we're going to be a lot more efficient. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the ways that I explain it to people that, that kind of struggle to visualize dimension reduction is that the first form of dimension reduction is a 2D map, right? Where the, the, the globe is, is existing in three dimensions and we hmm. compress that down into two to retain as much information as possible while losing as little information. But of course you always lose some um, information. Um, and another example that I guess people may be more familiar with in their sort of day-to-day -day life is audio compression. So um, the codex that um, converts a raw audio file to MP3, for example, our um, dimension reduction um, and we hope that we keep as much information as possible you know the sound still the song still sounds pretty good um, but we still lose some information so if you listen to an mp3 compared to a wave file for example most people can hear the the loss of quality yeah yeah well i deal with that on on this program all the time where <laughs> we record in waves we record in mp3s although I found that um, I try to use Wave when I can. It's uncompressed, but I found when people just send me MP3s, it's usually not that big of a deal. Um, we have uh, we have some good good converters that can uh, make them sound just as good. Uh, particularly since a lot of people listen to these podcasts on sound systems that aren't gonna it's not gonna matter that much. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, and, and that kind of demonstrates that the dimension reduction algorithm is is working, right? We're retaining as much information as possible. Right, right. Um, cool. Okay, so we, uh, so yeah, I, I like that um, we have uh, you have several chapters on clustering and dimensionality reductions, not just one chapter each. And so it looks like you go into a bit of detail there, which is um, a little bit. Uh, I, I don't want to say it's it's unusual, but it's like it, it's good, especially for like kind of a more introductory text, you know, like, OK, maybe I can get a very complicated text that goes into all the PCA. But but for the uh, uh, on the kind of level of this thing, good, I, I kind of like that it gives the uh, the summary. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about, you know, what are the different clustering and dimensionality reduction algorithms that you've looked into and maybe cover in the book and what's proved useful to you uh, in, in your work? 
Yeah, so um, we, we cover a couple of sort of bread and butter things that, that people should know, as well as some um, more advanced, advanced, uh, usually better performing algorithms. Um, the reason that uh, I cover a bunch of different algorithms for the same thing is the no free lunch theorem. So this idea that no one algorithm will always um, outperform all other algorithms for, for all problems. So if people have this kind of toolkit of different algorithms, um, they can try different ones and evaluate their, their performance. So for clustering, um, the book covers uh, k-means and hierarchical clustering, which are kind of maybe a little bit more old-fashioned now, but they're kind of bread and butter. They work well in some situations. Um, we cover um, um, clustering algorithms that focus more on density, so things like DB scan and optics. Um, and then finally, um, we look at um, a mixture model clustering that um, fits a set of uh, Gaussians, um, multivariate Gaussians to the, to the data. Um, and basically iteratively updates their position until um, it fits the data um, as well as possible. Um, and these are kind of um, algorithms that are general purpose that a lot of people use them for a lot of different uh, applications. Um, flow cytometry data um, is a, kind of a little bit esoteric and people actually come up with their own algorithms um, specifically for this form of data. And by far the most popular and most successful one um, is one called FlowSOM, um, which uh, is actually a combined clustering and dimensionality um, reduction algorithm uses a, a dimensionality reduction algorithm called self-organizing maps um, for, for, for the data. But it's not really used outside of cytometry. But the dimension reduction, um, we cover um, principal components analysis, which I think people would kill me if, if I called it machine learning. I mean, it's just a transformation, but you, kind of, you can't teach dimension reduction. Well, without... yeah, no, I consider it part of the field. I don't know. It's, um, I, I've used it less uh, myself. I've used a little bit on Foursquare data, but it, it hasn't yielded anything that it was too mind-blowing yet. But it's used very heavily in other fields. It is. I mean, the thing is, because um, it, it creates these linear components, if you have complex nonlinear relationships in the data, it tends to fall down very easily. Mm. Um, and so the book also covers nonlinear um, um, uh, reduction algorithms uh, like uh, TSNE, um, which is, is very popular, and UMAP, which is a bit newer, um, and also um, self-organizing maps, uh, which I'm particularly fond of. Um, uh, and finally, uh, locally linear embedding, which is a little bit more esoteric. I don't think that's used really um, as, as often. Cool. And, this, and, and so the book is called Machine Learning with R, the Tidyverse, and MLR. Uh, it's for people who are, it's, it's sort of, it's on a level where it's introductory, right? It's not, um, it doesn't, it's not written for people who are already experts in machine learning. So you can kind of um, uh, apply this stuff right away. I have a few uh, codes that I can give out, some, uh, some free ebook codes for anyone who, I think it's the first five people, yes, it's the first five people who email this program at localmexradio at gmail.com. You just came out with this, right? Uh, a few weeks ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Congratulations. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah it's very nice. How long thing. did it take you to write this thing? <sighs> a lot longer than it should have done. It took me um, <laughs> a year to write. And I'm still it... working on the same paper I was two, a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it felt like a, a, a paper because it was, uh, it had, uh, I think we had about a dozen reviewers um, for it. But so, yeah, it's, it's now out. They finally sent me my physical um, copies of the book, which is uh, really, really wonderful. Um, yeah, so it's um, it's it's brand new and uh, ready to fly off the shelves. I hope. <laughs> what would be what would be like your dream use case for uh, 
for these unsupervised algorithms in your field. Like if you could pull together any data set and solve a particular problem, what comes to mind is something like, oh no, this is, this is going to be really, uh, it would be really cool to uh, use these techniques to solve this problem. Uh, if we could have um, a model or a set of models that we could input our, our um, data from, so with, you know, our, our, our data that doesn't have labels, um, and for an algorithm or a model to take all of that data, um, identify the cell types in it, and actually uh, map those cell types to um, uh, existing um, databases of, of cell annotation so that we could give it any sample, and it would tell us, you have this frequency or this proportion of cell type X, this proportion of cell type Y, um, without us having to do that um, manually, um, for example. Interesting, interesting. All right. Um, cool. Great. Uh, I think uh, we're about uh, ready to wrap up. Do you have any uh, last thoughts on this? And um, and where should people go if they want to learn more? Obviously, localmaxradio.com slash 116. I will post all the links, including the book. But um, um, any conclusions here? Uh, I mean, if you are someone that is... Um new to, to machine learning, or maybe you've done a, a little bit, um, even if you've done quite a lot, I mean, um, the, the frameworks that, um, and the packages that my book teaches, uh, I think people would find uh, useful, they're, they're very new. But aside from that, I mean, there are a huge number of resources um, available online, some paid, some free, uh, that are wonderful for getting people up and running. So I would say just pick a, a pet project that really interests you, maybe it's a sports project or something, a little data science project, um, and work with it and try different techniques with it. And uh, uh, the learning will, will will come faster with that, I think. Awesome. Once again, localmaxradio.com slash 116 for all the links and for the free eBooks, just email localmaxradio gmail.com. First five gets a, gets a code. Heaven Reese, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. All right. Once again, the book is called Machine Learning with R, the Tidyverse and MLR. Use promo code PODLOCALMAX19 at manning.com for 40% off. Also, the first five people who email me at localmaxradio at gmail.com will get a code to get the ebook for free. Um, now, as I thought about our discussion, I actually, I was thinking about this whole thing, thinking about, you know, how, how machines learn. <laughs> it's machine learning. And I was looking at the four topics that the four broad chapters that you could find in Heaven's book, and I thought, you know, hey, I kind of, um, I kind of see an interesting way to think about how this is organized, like in my mind. So it starts off with uh, the idea of classification and regression. Now, for those of you who aren't in machine learning, classification is the problem of trying to classify something, trying to say, hey, this is in one of, this is in one of three different types. This, is, uh, th th this could go into three different buckets, three different types of people, three different types of situations. I don't know. It doesn't have to be three. It could be any number. Binary classification is the common one. Is it in or is it out? That's kind of like we're identifying a, you either have a, a, a disease or you don't. That's, that's classification. And then the other supervised one is regression when you're trying to look at something uh, along a scale. So for example, I'm trying to predict something that's not, not a discrete value like classification, but it's a continuous value. Like it's a, 
it's a number. Uh, maybe I'm okay. Well, the common one that that's I, I always revert to you know the common explanations, but one of the common ones is trying to predict a housing cost. Well, it's you can turn it into a classification problem by trying to classify it into several different types of of, of houses. But really, you want to know uh, the how much a house will sell for, or how much you should buy a house for, and or maybe how much you should buy or sell a stock for. And regression will well I. Let's not do stocks. All right. Uh, regre- <laughs> regression will take the data and will come up with this kind of continuous value. So, uh, you know, one of the things that I think about when you, when you think about the, um, the domain of the problem, whether it's discrete or continuous, that tells you a lot about the problem. Now, interestingly enough, there are also two different types of unsupervised learning. There's clustering and there's dimensionality reduction. And when I thought about that, well, clustering is really the discrete version of unsupervised. That's when you take a bunch of pieces of data or a bunch of individuals or a bunch of situations or whatever it is, and you kind of put it into a discrete, small discrete number of clusters. So five clusters, whatever it is, two clusters. Um, And then dimensionality reduction, you're not putting them into clusters, but you're putting them either along a line or along a plane or, or something like that. You're kind, of, um, you're kind of mapping them out in a, in a continuous space. So these four topics make a, lo- a lot of sense. I'm kind of thinking of a sort of a, a four-square board, kind of like a, a, a cross where the, one of the dimensions is, are you going to be doing supervised learning or unsupervised learning? And the other dimension is, are you going to do it in the discrete way or are you going to do it in the continuous way? And all four of those yield a different field or class of problems in machine learning. So if you're doing supervised, uh, supervised discrete, that's classification. Supervised continuous, that's regression. Unsupervised discrete, that's clustering. Unsupervised continuous, that's dimensionality reduction. So when you think about it that way, the organization of, of the book that Heaven uh, chose to use makes a lot of sense. And I feel like I've thought about that in my mind a bunch before, but it kind of all clicked as I was listening to the conversation. Uh, finally, I don't want to get into anything too serious now. We already racked our brains too much today. I just want to tell you a little bit about my weekend, which was really interesting, because uh, what I actually did was I spent my whole week, so I wanted to get a video out that I had made a long time ago, and the video was on a mini DV cassette. I don't know if you guys remember, some of you might not even be old enough to remember, well, most of you should be old enough to remember mini DV cassettes, but they weren't that widespread. They were used probably, I would give the years roughly 2000 to 2010. They were the last, um, they were the last moving media. So, you know, we used to have video cameras that would store, that would, you know, you'd shoot film on, uh, on VHS, you'd shoot video on, on VHS. And mini DV was kind of the last one. It was like a, these tiny tapes that stored maybe an hour of digital film each. And I had a video camera that I used throughout the 2000s, and I took a lot of video. I took video of my radio show. I took video with um, you know, Fifth Humor, which was my comedy group in, in college at Yale. I just took a lot of video of stuff that I saw walking around the city and like um, different events and things like that. I took a lot of family video. Um, and of course, Dictator of Easton, my, my shows from, uh, from, from high school. And, and, and did I say my radio show? I think I said that, but I probably did that more than I needed to. But it turned out that sometimes in my radio show on, on Yale, at Yale College, I, uh, at Yale Radio, I would uh, set up, the, um, set up the, the video camera and um, 
and, and record. And so I had, I think, 32 tapes. And it was, uh, you know, I've been meaning to do this for 10 years to upload them on the computer. I say digitize them on the computer, but that's actually not the right term because digitize means that you're taking some analog thing like VHS and converting it to digital, whereas these tapes actually store digital information. So um, all I have to do is transfer it to the computer, but it was not so easy. I had to use my old video camera and use kind of a a Firewire cable that hooked into a Firewire Thunderbolt converter that uh, plugs into my old <laughs> Mac. <laughs> so uh, kind of uh, kind of a duct tape solution there. Um, but it's really it's a really interesting pro project to kind of preserve uh, the past, preserve uh, digital information. It sort of makes me think, like, what is the best way to preserve digital information over the long term? You know, I have them on a bunch of different hard drives. Uh, they're they're kind of hard to, uh, in, a, in a bunch of different media because, you know, I'm not throwing out the tapes. So it's it's sort of an interesting question. How do you preserve this stuff for the long term? But I'm glad that I can get to share it with uh, with the people involved. Um, I You know, I finally feel like this is part of having a successful lockdown. Because I know a lot of you, you know, we got into this lockdown and a lot of us were staying in our homes and we're like, well, I'm not doing anything. I feel useless over here. Um, but this is actually something that uh, I kind of got up and did uh, and probably wouldn't have happened without the lockdown. So if there is a silver lining, and I know that's tough to say, but uh, it's kind of gotten us all out of our routines in some ways, out of our local maximums. And it's, it maybe, maybe this lockdown has put some of our goals on hold, but it's also allowed us to explore other goals that, uh, that we couldn't see before. So for those of us who are healthy, I guess, if you experience this, tell me how at localmaxradio.gmail.com. It's a topic that uh, I want to explore further. Um, and... Um, you know, hopefully, hopefully I'll find some more uh, fun projects to get done and uh, different ways to kind of experiment with with the local maximum here. I, I think I said in our first coronavirus, like kind of quarantine episode was 110. And I said, well, I hope we're not talking about this by 120. Well, we'll be talking about this, but I hope we're not, you know, in the, in the same. And now we're 116. It feels like we're not that far uh, it, it feels like it's been a lot longer than it really was. So, um, you know, I, I'm looking forward to getting a bunch of things done and then returning to somewhat normal. And I think things will return to normal. I know a lot of people are out there trying to give the worst case scenarios. I'm tired of it. I'm over it. I don't want to hear everyone's worst case scenario all the time. You know, what is the point? Uh, so that's all I have to say. <laughs> so look ahead and look up. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel, feel the power.